Good morning. Back in February of 2020, at the 92nd Annual Academy Awards, the movie Parasite became the first non-English language film to win the Oscar for Best Picture. It was a historic moment of recognition by the Academy for the extraordinary work and artistic contribution of Asian filmmakers. However, less than a month later, when the pandemic hit our shores, political leaders here in America began referring to the COVID-19 pandemic as the China virus and the Kung flu, scapegoating Asian people. Words matter, and these bigoted comments led directly to a rise in discrimination and hate crimes against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, including the horrific mass shooting in Atlanta. Similar to the way Muslims were targeted after 9-11, the rise of violence against Asian Americans betrayed our stunning inability to learn from our past mistakes and understand the reality of life for Asian people. The film Parasite actually has much to teach us. Created by South Korean director Bong Joon-ho, this dark comedy thriller is centered on a poor family, the Kims, who scheme their way one by one into the employment of a wealthy family named the Parks and infiltrate their household by posing as highly qualified individuals who are not related to each other. The son becomes the park's tutor, the daughter their art therapist, the father their chauffeur, the mother their housekeeper. But they conceal the fact that they are related to one another. If you haven't seen the movie, you can imagine the kind of hilarious situations that ensue throughout. And yet, Parasite delivers far more than laughter. Alongside the humor, director Bong Joon-ho offers a profound social critique of economic inequality, wealth disparity, and class conflict. It's a parable, the movie, about late-stage capitalism that asks deep questions about our responsibility to one another in a society together. And there's this one scene that I can't get out of my head. I can't seem to shake it. The Park family unexpectedly returns early from a camping trip, and the Kims, who've been living in the house while their parks were away, are suddenly forced to hide under a table to keep from being discovered. And disappointed that their trip ended early, the park's rambunctious son goes outside to pitch a tent in the backyard in the rain. So Mr. and Mrs. Parks sleep on the sofa in order to keep an eye on their son through the window. But the sofa is right next to the table that the Kim family is hiding under. And as they're falling asleep, Mr. Park says to his wife, what's that smell? It's a smell that wafts through my car. It's Mr. Kim's smell. It's not an old man smell as much as more like a radish or when you boil a rag. He never crosses the line in his work, but that smell, it crosses the line. Sometimes you smell it on the subway, Mr. Park says. You know, people who ride the subway have a special smell. The table 
and the smell become metaphors for class divisions between the families, as well as the Park family's disgust for the poor people who work for them. Film critics have now associated Parasite with the term Hel Jewosun, a satirical term that became popular in 2015 to describe the way living in modern South Korea is like living in hell. The phrase is popular among young Koreans who are fed up with unemployment and harsh working conditions and government policies that are contributing to economic inequality, excessive hours, as well as the frustrating inability to escape from poverty despite hard work in a society that favors vested interests. Anyone who's read Isabel Wilkerson's new book, Cast, can go and watch Parasite in order to see a modern-day picture of the systems that Wilkerson describes. Of course, you could also simply read the Gospel of Mark. That's right. It may not be as humorous as Parasite or as comprehensive as caste, but the picture is the same. Different classes of people living in a caste system, desperately struggling to figure out how to live with each other in just and equitable ways. In agricultural societies like first century Judea, the economy revolved around harvesting crops and livestock to sell for other people to eat, which meant that the field was the primary site of production and the table was the primary site of consumption. Now, interestingly, these are both places where Jesus got into significant trouble. The only other economic system in society was the religious institution, which depended upon the tithes of the people for its subsistence, which, of course, is the other place that Jesus got into the most trouble, in the synagogue, in the temple. Now, the relationship between the field and the table, or production and consumption, was determined by local religious leaders who had a name. You've heard it before. They're called the Pharisees. Peasant farmers were, of course, responsible for cultivating the land. However, once the produce was detached from the ground, it became subject to strict regulations governed by the Pharisees who required a tithe of the first fruits, but also determined what was suitable for consumption according to strict purity laws. If a peasant farmer was unable, for some reason, to pay the tithe or follow the strict regulations, the Pharisees could and often would declare their produce unsuitable for consumption, which, as you can imagine, had a deep economic impact on that family. Try to imagine a world where the Pharisees not only functioned as religious leaders governing theology, spirituality, and law, but as the IRS the Department of Agriculture, and the Food and Drug Administration all rolled into one. We tend to think of the Pharisees as legalistic, but their legalism had a purpose. It was for power and control and money. We have records of disputes, actually, between Galilean peasants and the Pharisees over their abusive control of production and consumption. Many Galilean peasants could not afford to pay the tithes required or obey the laws about leaving their fields fallow in the Sabbath year or giving some crops left unharvested for gleaning among the poor or following strict guidelines about what they could and could not plant. These forms of piety, as they were considered in those days, like fasting, for instance, were a luxury for the wealthy and affluent and oppressive to the poor for whom hunger was a bitter reality of everyday life. So from the point of view of poor Galileans, the Pharisees 
were adjudicating the rules of consumption in a way that benefited themselves and the ruling class at the expense of the poor Galileans. And guess who happened to be a poor Galilean? Wouldn't you know? Jesus of Nazareth. Without an account of the socioeconomic situation in Judea, it is difficult to understand why Jesus flippantly defied all the purity laws and holiness codes of Jewish society concerning table fellowship, fasting, hand washing, regulations about the Sabbath, or why he infuriated the Pharisees intentionally to the point that they conspired with the Herodians to have him killed, to destroy him, the text says. Why would they do that if he was just telling them to stop being legalistic? Jesus was not just a rabble-rouser, troublemaker, or a rebel without a cause. There was a method to his madness, a reason for his rousing, a purpose to it all. His actions reveal that like the prophets who came before him, he believed the central religious obligation for all people, regardless of affiliation, was to address the hunger of the poor. According to Jesus... The responsibility of feeding the poor takes precedence over all other religious obligations, including the most sacred of all, which was observing the Sabbath. As we see in these stories from Mark, Jesus believed solidarity with the poor required not only directly feeding the hungry and healing the sick, clothing the naked, sheltering the homeless, welcoming the stranger. It also meant speaking truth to those in power addressing oppressive structures that create poverty, and even sometimes breaking the laws that were exploiting the poor. When Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, he was expressing that this was his mission, to come for the people on the bottom rung of the social ladder, struggling to find a way to survive with their backs against the wall, or what the founders of Korean liberation theology called the minyong, the multitude, the masses. The word multitude or minyong is uniquely important in Korean liberation theology, which emerged in the 1970s during the U.S.-backed dictatorship of Park Chung-lee. Minyong theology was born in the experience of South Korean Christians struggling at that time for human rights and social justice. It's a people's theology developed through a reading of the gospel in terms of Korean reality, creating a spirituality firmly rooted in their particular cultural context. Like black and Latin American liberation theologians, Minyong theologians view Jesus as a social actor who came to liberate the poor and oppressed masses, who he believed are the subjects of social change rather than the objects of history. Interestingly, without the founder of Minyoung theology, An Byung-myu, we would never have understood, even to this day, why and how Mark displayed Jesus' mission to the poor. Byung-myu was an academic, a scholar, who discovered that Mark was the first, Testament, first New Testament writer to use a specific Greek word, oklos, instead of laos, to refer to the people or the crowds who followed Jesus. Laos is a generic word used often in the Bible to refer to people generically, but the word oklos is very specific. It always meant poor people. And Byung-Myu found that Mark used this word to di differentiate the crowds from the ruling class in Jewish society. 
discovered that this word aklos was also analogous to a rabbinic term, amaharetz, or the people of the land, which meant the lower classes, the poor, the uneducated in society. And at the time, the rabbis taught that Jewish people were never to share meals or travel with the amaharetz. Two things you might remember that Jesus did constantly, traveling and eating. This means that the crowds who follow Jesus in Mark and the Gospels who came after are the poor and marginalized people, condemned by society, outcast, banished. And byung Mu says the Aklas are the mean young, the multitudes who wait for a new world because they are suffering in the present. And Jesus fought alongside the mean young for the advent of the kingdom of God. If Jesus came to bring good news to the mean young, the poor, the multitudes, the oppressed who are suffering under the table like the Kim family in the movie Parasite, then that explains why he had no time for any kind of law or religion or politics that did not consider the poor. When the Pharisees challenged Jesus because his disciples were not fasting, I'm sure that Jesus immediately thought of Isaiah 58 wondered, why are they not thinking of Isaiah 58, where it clearly says, why do you fast but you do not see? Humble yourselves but do not notice. You serve your own interests on your fast day and oppress all your workers. Such fasting will not make your voice heard on high. Is this the fast that I choose? No, this is the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of injustice, Isaiah said, to undo the throngs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every chain, to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house, and to clothe the naked when you see them. Just like the prophets who came before him, Jesus told the religious leaders that all their fasting and praying, all their worship, all their liturgy and music, all their laws and traditions, all their tithes and offerings, all their rules and regulations about the Sabbath and table fellowship, all their piety and spirituality and devotion meant nothing to God, absolutely nothing, if they were not also seeking justice for the poor and oppressed. Jesus intentionally subverted laws and traditions in order to reveal how they had been detached from the underlying purpose of all things, which was not the accumulation of power or money, control or comfort or the preservation of the status quo, but people. The purpose of it all was people, especially the multitudes of people, the masses, the mean young, the oculos, the poor. Humanity wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for humanity, Jesus said. The purpose of the Sabbath is people. The purpose of worship is people. The purpose of the law is people. The purpose of tradition is people. The purpose of fasting and praying is people. The purpose of the synagogue, the temple, the church is people. Healing the sick, feeding the hungry, welcoming the strangers and the sinners, clothing the naked, working for justice and equity for the people must always come before theology, before spirituality, before liturgy, before ceremony, before worship, law, and tradition. That's why James said later, true religion is this. Pure and undefiled religion before God is this. To care for orphans and widows in their distress. If anything made by or for humanity gets in the way of basic human flourishing, Jesus said it should be amended, abandoned, or abolished. This means that those of us 
who seek to follow in this way of Jesus must also come to believe that human need overrides every commandment and tradition. The purpose of it all is people, and especially the poor, who are living under the table. Now, of course, we must admit, we are all prone to forgetting the purpose of it all from time to time, aren't we? It's hard. It's hard to put people first, to put people over profit, or people over property, or people over law, or people over tradition. But don't be alarmed if you forget. We all need to be reminded of the purpose of it all from time to time. Even Jesus had to be reminded by the Canaanite and Syrophoenician woman who he turned away out of his own ethnic and religious bigotry, but she said to him, even the dogs under the table get to feed on the crumbs that their master drops. And she reminded Jesus in that moment of his purpose, the purpose of it all, the purpose of his followers, the purpose of religion, the purpose of life and the kingdom of God was to be good news for the poor and oppressed who were praying and begging and hoping to get some crumbs or scraps to eat from the tables of the ruling class so they would not starve to death. Later in Mark, when the Pharisees asked Jesus, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Jesus said, why do you break the traditions of God for the sake of your own traditions? God commanded you to care for the poor, not for tradition. It's easy to fall in love with our traditions, isn't it? Sometimes we don't even realize that we are more in love with our traditions than we are with God. Because we have imagined that God and our traditions are one and the same. That alone should give us pause in this text. But it's interesting to me that Jesus' response to the Pharisees' argument for tradition was not about God at all. It's as if Jesus was implicitly telling them that God had nothing to do with their traditions. The real problem Jesus was identifying is that the Pharisees loved their traditions more than they loved people and humanity, more than they loved life itself. As James Baldwin famously wrote, this is the whole root of our human trouble, that we are willing to sacrifice the beauty of our lives, to imprison ourselves in totems and taboos, crosses and blood sacrifices, steeples, mosques, races, armies, flags, and nations in order to deny the fact of death, which is the only fact we have. Have we ever stopped to wonder, who are we alienating with our traditions? Who are we excluding with our traditions? Who might we be harming with our traditions? What is the purpose of it all? What are we losing when we love our traditions more than we love God or people or life itself? Is it worth it? Born in 1915 as the daughter of Chinese immigrants, Grace Lee Boggs earned a Ph.D. at Bryn Mawr in 1940 and went on to become one of the greatest philosophers and human rights activists in the 20th century. In the opening lines of her autobiography, Living for Change, Boggs remarked, Had I not been born a woman and a Chinese-American, I would not have realized from early on that fundamental changes in our society are necessary. It was the experience 
of being born under the table that led her to see the world differently from the bottom up and allow her to become a force for change. Toward the end of her life, Boggs wrote, when you truly read Jesus, you will come to see that real wealth is not material wealth and real poverty is not just the lack of food, shelter, and clothing. Real poverty is the belief that the purpose of life is acquiring wealth and owning things. And real wealth is not the possession of property, but the recognition that our deepest need as human beings is to keep developing our natural and acquired powers to relate to other human beings. We urgently need to bring our communities the limitless capacity to love and serve and create for and with each other. Because love isn't about what we did yesterday, it's about what we do today and tomorrow and the day after. It is about always treating humanity as an end and never as the means. If the purpose of it all is people, the means to that end is love. Love for people, love for humanity, love for the poor. Not the overly personal, sentimental American understanding of love as pleasure or positivity or happiness, but the kind of love that Paul told the Philippians was in the mind of Christ. The love that calls us to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility to regard others as better than ourselves, looking not to our own interests first, but always putting the interests of others before our own. As followers of Jesus, if we could just put other people first, humanity first, the poor first, place others above and before ourselves, there would be no caste system. There would be no class inequality. There would be no multitudes or mean young or alkalos, no hungry, no homeless, no poor, no oppressed, no forsaken, no one hiding under the table or suffering right under our noses. There would be only people. Beloved children of God, who've been called to live together with freedom and equality in a beloved community of justice, love, and peace. Love God. Love your neighbor. Love the mean young, the multitudes, the poor, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, with all your spirit, all your time, all your money, all your power, all your politics. That, my friends, is the purpose of it all. And the rest is just commentary. Amen.